morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any the less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If any member is honored, all the members rejoice with it, but now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, 
second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you're the great God, and the Lord Jesus has promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we thank you, Father, that we see that you are at work in the church, that you are equipping each member of the body, and for that we praise you and we thank you. And Father, we now, as we come to study this passage, we pray for Tom, pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through him and that you would give us hearts to be obedient and faithful to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll be happy to know that I don't intend to cover all of that in one message. <laughs> but I did, did want to read it all in one piece because uh, it, is, it is one marvelous chapter uh, with a whole lot that we need to consider. Uh, I will say that uh, I'm going to do two, possibly three messages. And there are a lot of questions related to spiritual gifts. And there's a, it'd be very easy for me to leave some of you with questions unanswered, and I'd like to avoid that if possible. So during the next week, if you think of something related to this issue, the issue of spiritual gifts, that you would like to, to have addressed, email me, and I will make every effort to, to make sure that that, that is covered. Um, many years ago, in a context other than Community Bible Chapel, I was asked to take a test titled Spiritual Gifts Inventory. It looks sort of like a Myers-Briggs personality type test, but the purpose of this particular test was to help the test taker nail down not what his personal personality type was, but what his or her spiritual gifts are given by God, given by the Spirit. As I looked at the, the introduction and scanned the test questions, it became quickly apparent that the test depended heavily on a few assumptions that are very commonly made by Christians when it comes to this matter of spiritual gifts. If those assumptions actually matched up with what the Bible declares about spiritual gifts, the test would have been really valuable. But if those assumptions didn't line up with what the Bible declares, then the test would be of little or no use at all. I would respectfully submit to the writers of the test that it, theirs fell into the second category. Uh, what assumptions am I talking about? Well, the test very clearly assumed that it's possible to come up with a reasonably comprehensive list of all of the spiritual gifts based on what the New Testament shows us. Secondly, it assumed that it is possible to come up with a clear definition of each spiritual gift that's mentioned in the New Testament that explains exactly what that gift does, what it looks like in practice. 
Thirdly, it assumed that every Christian needs to know what his or her spiritual gifts are in order for those gifts to be put to the use that God intended when he gave them to you. I am convinced that none of those three assumptions actually matches up with what the Bible teaches about spiritual gifts. And I also believe that those assumptions tend to draw believers into misleading and man-centered notions concerning one of the most marvelous benefits that we receive as the children of God. Now, what leads me to those conclusions? Well, I'll give you a few big picture reasons first, and then we'll drill down and start looking at what Paul says. First of all, there are no two passages that list the gifts of the Spirit that present the same list. And every passage that lists spiritual gifts includes one or more gifts that are not included in any other passage. When you actually examine all of the relevant passages about spiritual gifts, I believe you're left with an inevitable conclusion that God is not giving us the whole, the whole list. I don't think that God intends for us to go to this passage and this passage and then assemble a chart and then we finally got it all mastered. I don't, think that, I don't think that's what he's doing. If not, why not? Why wouldn't God give us a comprehensive list of all the spiritual gifts? That's one question we're going to address. Secondly, no passage that, that presents a list of spiritual gifts even attempts to present clear definitions of, that explain how each gift works. They don't even attempt to do that. Some gifts appear to be fairly self-explanatory, like teaching or giving, perhaps service. Some apparently aren't very self-explanatory because theologians have been arguing about what they mean for centuries, like words of knowledge and words of wisdom and even tongues. If you go online and you find five articles about how one of those gifts works, I can pretty much guarantee you you'll find five different explanations. All of which raises another question, and that is, how can we properly use our spiritual gifts if God doesn't clearly tell us how each one works? Thirdly, perhaps most to the point, no passage, no passage says that every believer must know what his or her spiritual gifts are in order for those gifts to be put to the use for which God intended them. That then raises the question, how can we, how can we properly use our spiritual gifts if we, if we don't know what they are? I'm convinced that God gives us the answers that we need to, to all of these questions. Most English translations render verse 1 something like this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. My, my qualification of that would be that the word gifts is not in the original text in verse 1. The, verse, the first part of the verse ends with an adjective, the word spiritual in plural form. Now concerning spiritual things. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think, handles that, the translation well. It says, about matters of the spirit, lowercase spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. In other words, about spiritual things. I don't want you to be unaware. 
In verse 1, I believe Paul is talking in a, in a broad sense about what goes on in the spiritual realm. He wants to make sure we're not unaware or ignorant of the things that do go on in the spiritual realm that God wants us to know. The next two verses present the first critically important truth that Paul intends every believer to understand about what's happening right now in the spiritual realm. And that critically important truth is that every human being is being led by someone other than himself or herself. And the someone or someones that he's talking about operate in the spiritual realm. They are not seen. Now that doesn't mean that people are not in the mix. It just means that people are instruments in that mix. But there are, there are, there are spiritual beings who are leading every human being. Paul tells the Corinthian saints that back when they were worshipers of dumb idols, it doesn't mean stupid ones, it means idols that can't speak, they were being led. Well, he doesn't say by what or by whom, and clearly they were not being led by non-existent gods. I believe Paul already made it clear where the leading comes from that entices unbelievers into idolatrous practices. Uh, he did that back in chapter 10 when he explained that food sacrificed to idols is actually food sacrificed to demons. The, the false gods don't, they're insignificant. It's the demons that are significant. When men and women engage in the kinds of practices that Paul warned against at the beginning of chapter 10, including gluttony, drunkenness, sexual immorality, questioning the faithfulness of God, and grumbling against God, or when they just outright justify the deliberate worship of man-made gods, they are following the lead of Satan and of his demonic minions. Whether or not they realize or acknowledge that they are being led, Paul says they are being led. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 tells us that all unsaved human beings are walking according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that those who do so live in the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. See, before God saved us, if, we're, if you're here and you're saved, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, we were all led by Satan through the instrumentality of our own lusts. Now we are led by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's very, very popular in today's uh, modern industrialized cultures for men and women to insist that, that they are entirely autonomous, that they're not led by anyone or anything, that they are the masters of their own lives and destinies. God says, no, that's not how this works. If we are to rightly understand the battle that is raging all around us in the spiritual realm, we must understand this. There is no such thing as a human being who is influenced and controlled only by himself or herself. Those who have not been brought into union with Jesus Christ 
and been indwelled by the Holy Spirit are easily led bond slaves of Satan, whether they ever acknowledge it or not. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul tells us that the one who curses Jesus is not being led by the Holy Spirit. The one, on the other hand, the one who, who confesses that Jesus is Lord is being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> there's at least one so-called Christian sect that says all you have to do to be okay with God is just keep saying Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And they use this verse to do that. That's nonsense. What Paul is getting at here is that when a person curses Jesus or confesses Jesus as Lord, they are pulling back the curtain and they are showing who's leading them. That matches up very well with what John the Apostle says in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. All right, so every person is being led by someone. We who belong to Jesus are being led by the Holy Spirit. All right, in verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out one of the most clearly Trinitarian declarations that we find in any of his letters. He tells us that each of the three persons of the Trinity accomplishes a strategic role in equipping and putting to use every single redeemed saint. Now, as I've mentioned before in this, in this study of 1 Corinthians, when Paul uses the word Lord, he's referring to Jesus. When he uses the word God as distinguished from Jesus, he's referring to God the Father. In Paul's salutation to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1 verse 2, for instance, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that salutation is repeated in many of his letters. All right, so the word God refers to God the Father, the word Lord refers to God the Son. With that in mind, please listen carefully as I read 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. The word varieties appears in all three of those statements, and it tells us there are many different kinds of each of those things. Gifts, ministries, and effects. All of the various gifts are the domain of the Holy Spirit. Every gift of the Holy Spirit is a, a special enablement from the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes the person who has received the gift more skillful than other members of the body of Christ at doing one of the variety of ministries that God has assigned to the church. The gift enables the ministry doesn't mean you can't do the ministry without the gift. It means that the gift is a special enablement. We'll talk next time, by the way, about how 
Having a gift doesn't mean that you're the only one in the body that does that, what that gift enables. But, all right, so the various ministries that are enabled by those gifts and that put those gifts to use are the domain of the Lord, the head of the body, Jesus. And the effects of those gift-enabled ministries are the domain of God the Father. He sovereignly determines the outcome, the effect of every event that occurs in his creation. Now, I don't want to overstate the distinctness of these three domains and persons. Our God is not three persons, each acting in a way that excludes the other two. That's never the case. God is three in one. Three persons in one essence, existing and acting as one perfect unity. So while the Bible points out distinctions in the work of each of the three persons, every work done by those persons is ultimately the perfectly unified work of one triune God. Jesus went to the cross. The Father didn't go to the cross. The Spirit didn't go to the cross. But, but beloved, if you read the Gospels, the Father and the Holy Spirit were absolutely involved and operating and active in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and in all of Christ's life on this earth at his first coming. Now that, that actually has a whole lot to do with what Paul teaches in this chapter, that idea that you've got three persons, one essence, doing a unified work. That's what God does in his church. He takes many, he makes us one, and though we are still many, he has one work that we do together. We'll, we're going to have a lot to say about that. All right. Spiritual gifts are the Holy Spirit's domain, not ours. And this goes to all those questions and assumptions that we talked about at the beginning. After verses 4 through 6, that beautiful Trinitarian declaration about how this works, Paul spends the rest of chapter 12 focusing our attention on the work of the Holy Spirit as the giver, distributor, manager, and master of spiritual gifts. Verse 7 summarizes the key declaration of the whole chapter, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The words to each one tell us that every single believer is given one or more gifts of the Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have a spiritual gift. The words manifestation of the Spirit tell us that these gifts make manifest what the Holy Spirit is doing. They play out the Spirit's role in, in the church, through the church, through the people of God. The words for the common good reveal to us the purpose for which the Holy Spirit gives, distributes, and uses these gifts. Now, hold on to that, the, the for the common good part, that's going to be very important as we proceed. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts to each believer for the common good. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11 again, and I want you to notice that the first and the last verses... Verses 7 and 11 act as bookends. Uh, they present and then restate the vitally important central point that Paul is making in this chapter. 
Um, everything between those two verses particularizes that point. It, it provides specific examples to us of how that reality plays out in the church. Verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. And then he comes back around and he says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. I love that word distributing. Now the Holy Spirit wouldn't have to break a sweat to give every single one of us all of the spiritual gifts. Do you know that the only man who ever walked this earth that possessed all of the spiritual gifts was Jesus? But in order for the work of Jesus to continue on the earth through his church, all the gifts have to be represented. But the Holy Spirit didn't give all of them to each one of us. And there's a reason for that. In the divine genius of God, from an undetermined number of possible gifts, not known to us, but known to God, the Spirit gives one or more to each individual believer, and he doesn't ask us, he doesn't negotiate us with us, he doesn't look at our talents and skills and say, okay, that gift matches that guy or that lady. He gives gifts to every believer as a sovereign act of his perfect will. The Greek word for spiritual gifts is charismata. It's from the Greek word charis, which means grace. Grace. That's exceedingly important. Spiritual gifts proceed from the grace of God just as surely as our justification, sanctification, resurrection, glorification, and every other aspect of, of the complete salvation that we have in Christ proceeds from the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God by definition. The charismata are grace gifts. The spiritual gifts are grace gifts. We don't receive them because we solicited them. We don't receive them because we deserve them. We don't receive them because they match up with our natural skills or interests or talents. They're not based on anything in us. <laughs> They're all God's doing, just like everything else about our salvation. The Holy Spirit gives these grace gifts to every believer and he distributes them, giving different gifts to different members of the body of Christ. And again, this is fundamental to understanding how God accomplishes the work of Christ through the body of Christ. If, if the Holy Spirit had given all the gifts to each individual believer, that would allow us to be independent of one another, right? We could just go out and do the work of Christ all by ourselves. Why did he do what he did? Well, he very deliberately, instead of making us independent, made us interdependent. He made me to need 
your spiritual gifts in order to get the work of Jesus Christ done, and he made you to need mine and, and everybody else's spiritual gifts to, to, to get the work of Christ done. You with me? That forces us to act together. It also means that when somebody clocks out of the body of Christ, they are depriving the bride of Christ, the people of Christ, with certain gifts. It doesn't mean God won't make that up, give the gifts to someone else. The point is, they're violating God's design. It's one of the reasons internet church doesn't cut it. At the level of the local church, in order for the work that Christ intends to accomplish through his flock of saints to be accomplished, I need to be connected to you. You need to be connected to me. I need the gifts that, that the Spirit has given to each of you, and you need the gifts that the Spirit has given to me and all the others. I know I said that before, but something's very repeating. The Holy Spirit, now, if, if I've lost you, come back. The Holy Spirit creates diversity in, or, in the church in order to nurture unity. He creates diversity through the giving of gifts, the distribution of gifts to nurture unity. It's beautiful. To put it another way, he makes us different in order to make us one. Now this is a marvelous, stop and think about this. This is a marvelous and miraculous reversal of the curse here and now. It's not the undoing of the curse, that's going to come soon, but it most certainly is a reversal of the curse that only exists within the church of Jesus Christ and nowhere else in the world. If you remember the narrative, the historical narrative in Genesis chapter 11 regarding what happened at Babel, you'll understand what I mean by this next statement. When God first intervened in his creation to create diversity between human beings, he did so as a judgment, as a curse, not as a blessing. Right? God created diversity to destroy man-centered, man-sourced unity. Unity that mankind had obsessively pursued in order to escape accountability to God. All of mankind assembled together in one place, they had one language, and they said, we're so powerful together, we will build our own tower to heaven. We don't need God. And God said, no, that's not the way it works. God judged the grotesque arrogance of mankind by confusing their languages and the birth of numerous different languages in an instant that could not be understood by those who spoke one of the other languages caused harsh divisions to occur between people groups with the result that mankind was scattered across the whole earth. The dividing and scattering of mankind is the central theme of Genesis chapter 10 and the first half of Genesis 11. Go look. Look how many times the word scattered is used. At the end of chapter 11, God begins creating a people for his own possession. So for a time, humanity had one language, one culture that united them, but, but at Babel, God forced diversity in order to divide people, to create separation between people. This godless world longs, longs for unity among human beings. But beloved, unity without God is inherently cursed by God. 
You and I have no reason at all ever to celebrate unity among men that sets aside God. And, and make no mistake, that's exactly what the world expects and demands that we do. Because man-centered unity is cursed. And that's precisely why at Babel, the God-ordained purpose of diversity was division. But now in his church, the God-ordained purpose of diversity is unity. Isn't that beautiful? That's a reversal of the curse. That's the upside-down kingdom of this world turned right-side-up by the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that point is front and center in verses 12 through 27 of this passage. I'm not going to go through all those this time, but in verses 12 to 14, look in your Bible, verses 12 to 14, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. This is patterned after Christ. And, and by the way, someone a long time ago said that the body thing, you know, that we are members like limbs and parts of the body of Christ, that, that's, that is not a metaphor. This is the metaphor, okay? That this is the lesser reality that points to the greater reality, this physical body. The body of Christ is as real as real gets, okay? Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we are all, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, <laughs> but many. I love, I love the way he, he goes both directions. We are many made into one, and we're many. The Holy Spirit's design for the church of Jesus Christ is unity through, by, and be because of Spirit-created diversity of gifts. Isn't that great? See, that's why it says that He gave, He distributed the gifts to each one for the common good, for the, for the building up of the body of Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 4. What's the purpose of the giving of gifts? For the equipping of the saints so that we all grow up into one head who is Jesus Christ. All right. Which gifts are your gifts? The most common question that you hear from Christians regarding spiritual gifts is, which gifts are my gifts? I believe the heart of Paul's answer based on all that we find in this passage and in others is, don't sweat it. If you need to know, and you might, God will make sure that you know. If you don't need to know, don't sweat it. When we finally get the, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in, in His work in our lives, we don't worry about that. He doesn't need us to know anything in order for Him to do in us what He intends to do. And stick with me. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a real life example from the Bible that I believe bears that out very clearly. This chapter is the most foundational, fully developed passage on the theme of spiritual gifts. And nowhere in this passage does God say that every believer has to know what his or her gift is. I think there's far too much agonizing in the community of the saints when it comes to sorting out whose gift is whose. Listen one more time to verses 7 through 11 and, and listen to who's, who's getting this job done. All right? 
To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of gifts, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Does it sound like He's depending on us to get this done? Verse 18 says, Now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. I think we give ourselves far too much credit <laughs> in a lot of ways. Here's the example I was, that I mentioned. At the, at the first feast of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Jesus, it's recorded in Acts chapter 2, is there anything in the passage that indicates that the disciples were expecting the Holy Spirit to give each of them the ability to speak in foreign languages that they had never learned? Go look. It's not there. Is there any agonizing in that chapter among the disciples about which disciple would need to talk to which ethnic group based on which language they had been suddenly made to know? No. No such agonizing is even hinted at. The Holy Spirit simply gave to each individual disciple the supernatural spirit-sourced abilities that that disciple needed to get the job done on that particular day in that particular situation. I submit that the, that the disciples had no need at all to know what special enablement the Holy Spirit had given to them that day in order for that special enablement to be fully put to use for the purpose that it had been given. The one thing that the disciples did have to do that day was carry out the assignment that Jesus gave to him in the previous chapter. Before he ascended back to his rightful glory at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus said to his disciples, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, Jerusalem was in a region called Judea. North of that was Samaria and the rest of the earth was elsewhere, okay? So in Acts chapter 2, here are the disciples in Jerusalem at the starting gate of this commission that Jesus had just given to them. So what was the one thing that they knew without a doubt that Jesus intended for them to start doing? Witnessing. Without expecting it any more than they had expected the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, they suddenly saw tongues of fire distributing themselves, there's that word again, and resting on each one of them. I'll give you three guesses who was doing the distributing. It's the Holy Spirit. So what did the disciples do? They started proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ just like he told them to do. And as they did so, the Holy Spirit gave each of them the supernatural ability to do so in the languages of the hearers. 
The result was that about 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of Jesus Christ in a single day. It's a pretty good start, wouldn't you say? Did the disciples have to take a spiritual gifts inventory to get ready for Acts chapter 2? No. If there is a pattern in that event for how the enabling gifts of the Spirit work, it is this. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gives to each believer the enablement that he or she needs to do the task that God has assigned. The believer doesn't have to know or do anything other than obey the commandment the commands of God independence on, in their dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit gives some gifts for the long haul, and He gives others according to the need of the moment, like He did in Acts 2, to the same individual Christian. When we need to know what special enablement He has given us, He'll make sure that we know. Now, please understand, I am not saying no Christian ever needs to know needs to be able to identify a spiritual gift that he or she possesses. When a local church puts someone in the role of, of teaching the body as a whole, they, they really want to know that that individual has the gift of teaching. When they assign responsibility to an individual to oversee large and complex administrative tasks that affect the whole body, it's reasonable that they would, they'd want to have some pretty good evidence that that person has the gift of administration. Bottom line is this, whether God intends for you to know what your spiritual gift is or not to know is his problem, not yours. So don't sweat it. The one thing that you and I must do is get on with the assignment that God has given to every believer. Love God, love your neighbor, Abide in the word, pray without ceasing, and proclaim the good news of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who will listen and to everyone who won't. If you need to know your spiritual gift, God will smoke it out through your faithfulness in doing what you already know he intends for every believer to do. Does that make sense? No agonizing required. Just childlike obedience and submission. That's how I learned uh, over the course of quite a number of years that one of the spiritual gifts he had given to me is the gift of teaching. As a, as a young believer, one-year-old believer in my first year of college, I sought to make disciples because Jesus told me to make disciples, just like he told all of you. I invited other students to study God's word with me. First in my college dorm room, I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ at AM, and I, I started witnessing, and I started uh, serving people that God put in my path in every way that I could, could do so. Sometimes just physical things, right? I, uh, I, I taught later at a youth group in my church and then adult Sunday school classes. I engaged in many different kinds of ministry according to the needs that were set before me. And then over time, and I should point out, largely through the feedback that I got from my brothers and sisters in Christ, several of whom are in this room, I came to understand that I had the gift of teaching. If I had never come to understand that, I would not have, been, have accepted this role. 
What we most need to know is this, beloved, the giving and the distribution of spiritual gifts does not depend on you or me in any way. Where we enter the picture is that the usefulness of those gifts in the hands of the Spirit just demands our yieldedness, our humble willingness to obey God by doing the things that every believer has been instructed to do. And that yieldedness, by the way, is God's work too. Philippians 2, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Dear Father, all the credit for our usefulness goes to you and you alone. We ask you for the very thing that you already promised to do, to use the different gifts that you've given to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit by, the, by his sovereign work to drive us toward greater interdependence. We ask you to use the diversity of gifts that you've created in your church to grow the unity that you have created in your church, reminding us always that we need Christ in each other. It's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.